0: New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. My name is Theodore pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Program. And now then, good people, much against my better judgment, the powers that be have determined that we at the ARC need to up our game and modernize this show a bit. Uh, So this evening, we are introducing a new feature to the Light program that allows you, the humble listener, to interact with yours truly, your presenter. To this end, we have installed a newfangled telephonic apparatus here in the studio, and we are inviting you to call the program and speak to me directly with your views and so forth. We have christened this new feature... The listeners telephone in. Uh, Because you are telephoning into the studio, do you understand? Uh, Well, I confess, it had to be explained to me a few times. Uh, To achieve this, you should dial the following number. Metropolis, one, zero, four. Now, this might be quite a technical leap for some, so I've been asked to explain further that it works thus. If you are living within the metropolis, you merely need to lift your receiver and dial the numbers 1, 0, and 4. And lo, you will be connected. Apparently, it's as easy as that. If you are living outside the metropolis, then things are a tad more complicated. In that case, you must call the operator and ask them to make a trunk call. The operator will ask you which region and number and you should reply confidently with Metropolis 104. The operator will then connect you. Well, I hope that's all as clear as the proverbials. Ah, well, so here we go with the very first listeners' telephone in on the ARC Light program. Just go ahead and dial, or make that that trunk call. I am waiting to speak to you. Uh, Just while we wait for our first telephone call, I should remind you that following this segment will be the next instalment of our uh, much-admired Slumber Time Stories. Uh, Something about the moon this week, I believe. Mabel. Mabel, no one is calling. What should we do? Remind them of the number. Well, it's hardly that difficult to remember. Right, right, well, fine, right, well, I'll do as you suggest. Um, Well, Mabel has sensibly pointed out that perhaps when I first announced the number, people didn't have enough time to get a pencil or fountain pen or equivalent and some paper with which to make a note. Um, So, I will announce the number again shortly, and if you wish to write it down to aid your dialing, then please do go and get a piece of paper and a pencil, and to this end I will now allow a short time for you to do this. Um, How long should I leave, Mabel? Uh, This isn't making for exactly riveting radio, now is it? I very much doubt this great leap into the future is going to win us any Albion Radio Awards long enough. (sighs) Uh, Right, everyone, I hope you have your paper and pencil handy now. Here is that number again. Metropolis, one, zero, four. Metropolis, one, zero, four. Right, right. Well, that should have sorted that out. So please take the paper to your telephone and ring us here at the ARC Studios. Mabel, Mabel, what do we do if no one actually calls in? Well, I hope it won't come to that. Oh, oh, ah, oh, there we go. Our very first listener telephoning in. Ahoy, hoy. Theodore, is that you? Uh, Mumsy? Is that your voice? I'm, I'm speaking to you on the telephone. Uh, Mumsy, I, I know this. I'm listening to you on the same. But uh, why are you calling in? Do, do you have a comment on the show so far? Oh, dearie me, no. Uh, you know I don't listen to your show. All that waffling on, I can't bear it. Uh, no, I much prefer that chap who does the dance music Luigi Engelbert. Engelbert? How good you, Mumsy. That's not even his real name, you know. No? No, his real name is Herbert Urban Trousers. Oh, he's not even really Hispanic either, you know. A right scoundrel. I really can't bear him. Mind your language, dear. You know, I can't tolerate petty jealousy. What are you doing on your show today, anyway? Well, I had hoped for an interesting selection of views from our listeners telephoning in... Uh, But that seems to have pulled up at the first fence. Following this, we have another in our series of slumber time stories. Oh, that old snooze fest. Well, it certainly sends me off into the land of Nod. Don't be so scathing, Mumsy. This one has cats in it. You like cats. And it's set on the moon, apparently. Sounds dreadful. (sighs) Well, thank you for that. Have you just called to upset me, or is there some other reason? Since you're on the line, what would you like for supper? Uh, well, since you ask, I've really had a little craving for fish cakes. We're having faggots. Oh, fine. Well, apparently that's all we have time for. Goodbye, Mumsy. Goodbye, Theodore. Do try and come in quietly. Oh, well, that was a resounding success, I'm sure. Well, tune in again next week for another riveting glimpse of the future with another of our listener telephone ins. And now, following that radio gold, here is the next instalment of Slumbertime Stories. Chapter One of In the Shadow of the Moon, Part One, by Darren Callow. Every morning, private, first-class, Erasmus Trout started his day the same way, enjoying a bitter-tasting tumbler of Cookie's best earthshine in the back of the cobbled-together field kitchen unit, before helping Cookie making breakfast for the troop. It was a ritual in which he indulged so many times that he had completely lost count. Cookie's company was always a pleasure. It had once been said that the rotund ruddy-faced chef was the man who put the gin in original, Uh, but again, Trout's fading memory did not supply the name of the wit who had coined this. Quite what was in Cookie's earthshine was a question that the wiry, long-limbed Trout chose not to dwell on for too long. After all, There were only three sources of food in their sprawling bunker complex. Hydroponically grown vegetables, a dwindling resource of preserved goods, and uh, waste products from the former, too. No, best not to consider it too hard. Indeed, best not to consider the whole situation in too much depth, lest one lose what little was left of one's sanity. No, far better to simply enjoy the tranquil moment of a pre-breakfast snorter with a chum and then lose oneself in the military regime that had been his lot for his entire adult life. In fact, he often considered at this quiet time of reflection that he was, on the whole, pretty content with his status as a lifer, a career soldier for the duration, a warrior for all seasons. Not that they saw many of those in this posting. The routine and discipline suited him to a T. Had his life panned out differently, he was quite sure he would have stayed in the army anyway for as long as he could. Mind you, in that scenario, he would have been retired now for six years, for in just three weeks' time, he would turn seventy-one. This thought was interrupted by the mewing entrance of his favourite feline, the wonderfully sleek Princess Azalea, looking for a pre-breakfast treat of her own. Cookie shrugged as he prepared to peel vegetables. He had nothing much to offer. In consolation, Trout eased his arthritic bones off the stool and topped up the cat's water bowl from an ornate brass tap. There you go, girl. Breakfast is on its way, murmured Trout to the cat. She shot him a look that was distinctly unimpressed, but lapped up a little anyway. The water here tasted pretty odd, mused Trout to himself, but one got used to it. In truth, it was all the princess had ever tasted anyway, so she knew no different. Those blessed spuds won't peel themselves, Trout, admonished Cookie in his thick accent, with only a little annoyance creeping into his voice, as he downed the last of his stiffener and started to busy his well-proportioned frame with the preparations. Right-o, Cookie, replied Trout, doing likewise, and grabbing a homemade apron to protect his venerable oft-repaired uniform. Let's get this rocket on the launch pad once more. After a meagre breakfast, the whole platoon, thirty men and slightly more accompanying cats, shuffled their way into the drill hall for the next part of their morning ritual. Come along now, gentlemen. Pick it up a bit, barked Sergeant Roger Wilco Rogers in his annoyingly brusque manner. I'll give it a rest, Wilco, muttered Corporal Ezra Longstocking, the oldest and most white-haired of their company. As he eased himself into line, and straightening down his tatty Homeland Defense uniform jacket, he added, We're all hobbling as fast as we can. Before Rogers could think of something militarily significant, yet witty, to counter with, he was obliged to utter, Troop! Troop! et shun as Captain Humpty Willingsmouth blustered into the room, a beaming smile all over his ruddy, mustachioed face. What 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 intoned the captain jovially, as he moved up to inspect his motley troop. What's all this complaining? He placed himself front and centre, and folded one hand behind his back whilst with the other he straightened the ends of his really rather exquisite handlebar moustache. The assembled troopers all sighed quite audibly at this, since it was a clear sign that Captain Humpty was about to deliver one of his trademark lectures. Quiet! bellowed Sergeant Rogers. Roger, Roger, we'll go! Chortled Longstocking under his breath, a joke that, unlike the assembled platoon, showed no sign of getting old. More guffaws were cut short as Rogers rounded on the unfortunate corporal. Now, look here, long-stocking. You're not too old to be thrown in the brig, you know. Oh, yeah? By you and who's stairlift? Um, now they men, settle down, interjected their captain, with only the slightest note of impatience. I'm not going to stand for any of this old talk. It's a well-known fact that you are only as old as the woman you feel. What woman would this be? Muttered someone from the second row, with a note of melancholy tinging his tone. If the captain had heard, he chose not to show it. Now, I don't know if you're aware of it but this coming Tuesday will be our 50th anniversary of taking Fortress Gwendolyn. A murmur of some surprise went around the assembled men. And I, for one, don't feel in the slightest bit different to when I led you to this great victory. No, indeed. I can safely say, without the slightest fear of contradiction, that I have never felt finer in all of my life. Furthermore, Captain Humpty stopped at this point, and a rather odd expression came onto his face, which seemed to have lost a little of its rosy complexion. He looked as if he was going to say something else, but the only sound that came out was a slightly croaky gurgle, and with this he promptly collapsed, with all the grace of a felled oak falling gently to the earth. For a second or two, there was a stunned silence, as no one was quite sure whether this was some sort of jape from the jovial captain, or a real emergency. Finally, after what seemed an age, in which the captain did not move a muscle, Private Godwin Purpletree remembered that he was indeed the designated first aider, and moved in a rather less than sprightly manner to attend the fallen officer. Ignoring the plaintive mutterings of, "'I haven't dismissed you yet!' from Rogers, the other soldiers pushed past him to form a loose group around the body. Purple Tree felt for a pulse, and then looked up, his face quite ashen. "'He's gone!' was all he could find to say, before tugging his cap from his head and clutching it to his chest. The other started to do the same, and an odd tear was heard being stifled. It was quite astonishing to those who cared to dwell on it that in all their near fifty years in the fortress this was the first soul they had lost, to combat or otherwise. That it should be their commander-in-chief made it all the more poignant. What are we to do now? inquired Trout, somewhat forlornly, and since no one really knew, nothing was offered by way of response. Indeed. Such was the lack of precedent to the unfortunate event that the septuagenarians might well have stood dumb-mouthed for quite some minutes more had their reverie not been interrupted by the sudden arrival in the parade hall of six or so additional cats in a state of some excitement. Leading this pack was Princess Azalea, who made straight for Private Trout and rubbed herself on his leg to get his attention. Oh, Not now, Princess, mumbled Trout wiping the hint of another tear from his phlegmy eyes. But as he glanced down at the cat, who was still arching her back against his calf, he couldn't help but notice that she had something in her mouth. A strange, metallic object that seemed to be buzzing, or alive in some way. "'What on Jupiter?' muttered Trout, as he reached down to take the object from the animal, who was clearly very pleased with herself. Once he had it in his hand, A chill went through him as he recognized it immediately, despite the fact that the last time he'd seen one of these was nearly fifty years previously. It was a small metallic device in roughly the shape of a mouse with four large rubber wheels, which were now spinning furiously as it tried to get away. Holomatron! he exclaimed, before quickly placing it on the floor on its back so it could not make good its escape and put it out of its misery with the heel of his size 8 boots, sending metal fragments in all directions. Now where in the world did you get that from? He asked the cat urgently. In response, Princess Azalea mewed loudly and headed out of the room, the other cats hot on her paws. It seemed that someone was going to have to take charge of the situation, And since Trout was the only one who didn't appear to be lost in his thoughts, it appeared to come down to him. Sergeant, you're our leader now. Get the captain somewhere safe. Ezra, Algy, with me. Let's see what the cats have found. With these words, the men seemed to snap out of their idyll, and the years of military discipline began to reassert themselves. Trout and his two chums strode with purpose in pursuit of the cats, one of which, who went by the moniker Marvin Moon Unit, had waited at the corner of the drill-hall airlock until they hobbled to catch him up. Adrenaline was beginning to course through his veins, and Trout found that with each step his stiffness seemed to ease a little, and he soon found himself lopping along the corridors at a fair old lickety-split. Fortress Gwendolyn, named for the Queen of Albion naturally, was quite a place since the vast majority of it had not been built by humans. Colossal domes filled with various gases, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen being the principal ones, made up most of it. Connecting this were a series of corridors and bunkers, many of which the soldiers had enlarged or repurposed for a variety of uses. Even now, they moved rapidly past sleeping quarters, storerooms, and vast arcane machines chuntering away on the vital services that kept them all in the land of the living. Ahead of them, the cats waited at every corner for the lumbering humans to reach them, and then sprinted on again. Eventually, they reached their intended destination, which was a particularly militarized bunker that appeared to be part observatory part weather station, with shuttered, heavily-glazed window slits pointing to all directions of the compass. The walls were adorned with a huge variety of brass dials, and near the window stood a myriad of Baroque telescopes, binoculars, and indeed trinoculars of both human and alien origin. The cats all moved to one particular set of looking glasses that were aligned to a shuttered window on the far side of the room, seemingly urging the accompanying men to take a look. The cats that dwelt with the soldiers in Fortress Gwendolyn had been specially bred to detect aliens and the holomotrons. And even these ones, three generations on from the original inhabitants of the bunker, retained these unearthly skills. Of course, there are some that say the cats were brought to Earth originally by extraterrestrials. Uh, But this has never been proved one way or the other to anyone's particular satisfaction. Nevertheless, these particular felines have always seemed very switched on when it came to military matters. Following their lead, Trout and Chattenborough moved to force open the great iron shutters on the bunker viewing port, whilst Longstocking, as the more senior man, swung the highly complicated-looking glasses into position to see out. With slightly trembling, bony fingers, he moved to the eyepieces and fiddled with the focusing mechanism, before he let out a short gasp. What is it you can see? inquired Trout, feeling his anxiety rising steadily. Better take a look for yourself and make sure an old man hasn't just hallucinated it replied the corporal, backing away from the eyepieces so Trout could position himself to take a look. Blinking hard as he moved the wheel to focus the binoculars, Private Trout started to take in what he could see. For many miles ahead, the whole cratered landscape came into focus. And at first, he was not sure what he was supposed to be seeing. Then, with a start, he saw them. Silhouetted on the very far horizon, a whole series of circles, barely visible at the maximum magnification of the viewing apparatus. Martian war wheels! he breathed, hardly able to believe what he was seeing. He, he defocused and focused the machine again, just to make sure, but there was no mistake he could clearly see the gigantic circular structures of three or four enormous Martian war wheels, evidently in the final stages of being constructed. Looking further, there were clearly other machines, robots and rockets all visible. And beyond that, the great blue and white circle of the Earth hung ominously in the pitch-black sky. There could be no doubting it. Fifty years almost to the day, the previously vanquished Martian marauders had returned to the moon. Well, this is hotting up now. Who saw that coming? Join us next time to see how this convoluted and somewhat lacking of linear narrative story finishes. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington-Rubarb signing off. Good night, New Orleans. I wish you dreams of a bright future. Characters and Stories are copyrighted to and performed by Darren Callan. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production Albion Radiophonic Corporation